0: Whenever we started this series called Game of Thrones back in February, I shared this thought or this quote. Few biblical books are as neglected by the church as First and Second Kings. We're reading First Kings. But part of the reason that First and Second Kings, but First Kings is, is kind of generally ignored and overlooked is because a lot of the material seems to be boringly repetitive especially whenever you get past solomon's story in first kings 11 and whenever you get past there and you start reading about the various kings who came and went they just messed up and messed everything up and so for many people when it comes to the book of first kings after first kings 11 they stop they jump forward because it just all seems so repetitive it's been a couple of uh, weeks since our last venture into First Kings, and as we do reconnect with the story, and we're up to the end of chapter 14, we really do find ourselves right in the thick of these so-called tedious and tiresome tales. So you kind of need to be prepared, okay? You kind of need to be prepared for this this morning. But even in the apparently monotonous and mundane, I hope and I pray that we can learn things that might expand our understanding, if not our hearts. Bearing in mind that all Scripture is useful at some level. So, if you've got a Bible, do you want to turn with me to First Kings chapter 14? It'd be really handy if you could see a copy of God's Word this morning, either a physical copy or on a device. But let me, as you look that up, remind you to where, where we got to a fortnight ago. Jeroboam Here's a couple. Of, I don't often use these kind of images, but anyway, we'll do it this morning. Jeroboam has, has died. He was king in the north. He ruled over 10 tribes. He ruled for 22 years. To sum up his reign, he was a disaster, complete disaster. He did, it says, evil in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, he did more evil than anyone before him had ever done. And so he made for himself and he made for the people other gods. And therefore, we looked a couple of weeks ago at the fact that his entire house ended up being burnt like dung. With dogs eating all those who died in the city and birds eating all those who died in the country, that's not quite right. Some of you might remember that Jeroboam's sixth son, Abijah, he didn't die. He wasn't burnt. He wasn't eaten. He did die. He wasn't burnt. He wasn't eaten. He was buried. Why? Because it says the Lord found something good in this young kid. Do you know, even in the midst of mess, there are often sometimes glimmers of hope. So that's where we left it two weeks ago. And as we pick up the story, the setting changes. We shift from the northern kingdom, Israel, to the southern kingdom called Judah, where Rehoboam is king over two tribes. Jeroboam in the north, 10 tribes. Rehoboam in the south, two tribes. Now, Rehoboam was Solomon's son. And he initially was king over all 12 tribes tribes. But because of his decision to turn the screws on his workforce, based on some rubbish advice from his peers, he was sent running for his life down south by 10 of the tribes who then installed Jeroboam as their king in the north. So that's how the kingdom was divided. Okay? So Rehoboam is king in Judah, the southern kingdom. And we're going to hear how he got on. We're also gonna meet the next two kings in the south who followed him, one called Abadja. Now that is the same name as Jeroboam's sixth son, but it's a different Abadjah. This gets really complicated, doesn't it? He's still with me. Okay. But there's another king called Abadjah but he's not Jeroboam's sixth son, okay? Another king called Abadjah, who follows Rehoboam, and the king that follows Abadjah is a king called Asa. And between the three of them, they reigned for approximately 60 years. Okay, so there's the background. So let's stand for the public reading of God's word. 1 Kings 14, going to read from 21 to the end of the chapter. It's on the screen. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem. The city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Nama. She was an Ammonite. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones, and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. In the fifth year of king rehoboam Sheshak, king of egypt attacked jerusalem he carried off the treasures of the temple of the lord and the treasures of the royal palace he took everything including all the gold shields that solomon had made so king rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned them to the com- commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards bore the shields, and afterwards they returned them to the guardroom. As for the other events of Rehoboam's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the king of Judah? There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, so north and south, uh, and Rehoboam rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David. His mother's name was Nama, she was a Namanite, and Abijah, his son, not a terrible sick one, his son succeeded him as king. Grab a seat. Okay, so as I say, as we re-engage with the story, the setting has changed. We've moved from the north to the south, but the situation hasn't changed. It sounds depressingly similar. Life in Judah, life under Rehoboam, spiritual life is much of a muchness. Here's it summarized. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before him had done. Now note, and this is really important, everyone's at it now. You see, it's not just the king this time that the narrator castigates It's not just Rehoboam who's reprimanded. Often up to this point, it's the king who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now it's Judah. Judah in general have completely lost it. The corporate downward spiral is shocking and tragic. Evil activities, rife, all kinds of detestable practices are widespread. Do you know, it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long for a whole community and a whole society to lose their moral and spiritual bearings, and principles, and values. It can happen so quickly. But rather than kind of wallow in their wickedness, I want us to see the reaction of God. Because in those verses we encounter, we confront an insight into the character of God that hopefully inspires us and challenges us. It's an insight we've mentioned before, but I want us to dwell on it for a while. The second half of that verse reads, they, the people, stirred up God's jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. If you have a different translation, it could say they stung him. You can sting God. They stung God to jealous anger. Now, jealousy, and certainly jealous anger, is something that we initially see as negative. It's just plain wrong. But God's jealousy isn't. It can't be. Because it speaks and it communicates volumes about God's love and his commitment to his people. You see, right back at the very beginning of their story, right back at the beginning of the history of God's people, they discovered and they were taught, see this God that has created you, that you have to worship. This God, your God, is a jealous God. Here's a couple of direct quotes. For the Lord, your God, is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. Or from the Ten Commandments, middle of commandment number two, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. But even more than that, far more than that, Look at this verse from Exodus 34. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but God is called jealous. And because a name reveals and discloses identity, we discover that this is a core facet of who God is jealous. And so what this meant, or what it was certainly meant to make clear, is that God's love and commitment to his people was such that if it seemed as if God was losing his people, if it turned out that they were flirting with other gods or being unfaithful to him, then God's jealousy is going to kick in. It's bound to kick in. It has to kick in if he's going to be consistent with who he is. See, just like a husband who loves his wife but fears losing her to someone else or to something else. God cannot, like that husband, sit back and not care and not give a stuff. It grieves God. It breaks his heart and therefore he reacts. He has to react because it's part of his character. It's an astonishing aspect of God's character, a precious aspect. And dimension. Because you see if God didn't react. Surely we'd question the depth of his love for us. Or his commitment to us. And so properly understood. Jealousy is both comforting. And terrifying. It's comforting because it reveals the sheer extent of his passionate love for us. But it's terrifying because it reveals his anger at everything and anything that threatens his people, including themselves in their relationship with them. You see, God zealously and jealously protects his love relationship with his people. That's comforting. But God reacts strongly, really strongly, whenever the affection of those he loves is directed elsewhere. That's terrifying. Or do you know something? It should be should be terrifying. And so the scriptures t- teach us that, that the people of Judah stirred up, stung God, stirred up his jealous anger because they were playing around with other gods and they were sinning left, right, and center. And church, we never want to do that. We never want to do that. And so if there's any chance this morning that there's another God or other gods that are attracting your attention or compromising your love for the one true God, then realize afresh this morning that our God is a jealous God. He's not just a jealous God. He's called jealous. And you may be, I may be stinging him to jealous anger. We'll go back to the text because, as Rehoboam's reign of this unfaithful community comes to an end, there's an incident that kind of reveals just how bad things have got. It says an enemy attacks Jerusalem. That's the capital city in the southern kingdom. An enemy attacks Jerusalem and carts off all the treasure, not just from the Jeru- not just from the temple, but from Rehoboam's grand palace. And they cart off everything, including the gold shields that Solomon had made. The enemy is none other than the king of Egypt. Like how humiliating is this? How sad is that? All the wealth, all the wonder, all the glory that Solomon had invested in those magnificent buildings, temple in his palace, are stripped and hauled off by the king of slavery land. It's pathetic. And to add insult to injury, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, they can only replace the gold shields with bronze ones. You see, this is just an increasing picture of fading splendor. Or as Peter Lethart writes, the golden age of King Solomon has given way to Rehoboam's bronze age. It's pathetic. And so as he comes to the end of a 17-year reign, there seems to be little or no hope. And so we read that Rehoboam eventually dies and his son, Abadja, takes over. And we wonder, well, what is he gonna be like? So if you've got a copy of God's word in front of you, flick over to the next chapter, First Kings 15, and let's look at verse three, which says this. He, that's Abadja, committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his forefather had been. Here we go again same old, same old. Seems like a pattern's being established. Every single king just seems to be a chip off the old block. Now, there's two fathers mentioned in here. The first one is his immediate father, which is Rehoboam, who modeled for Abadjah a life of sin, and Abadjah decided, I'm going to copy that. And the other father that's mentioned is a forefather, his forefather, David, who modeled a heart and a life that was fully devoted to God, and Abadja decided, I'm gonna ignore that. And if nothing else, it reminds us of the importance of finding and following good role models. Plus, it reveals that our most current and visible role models will potentially hold greater sway in our lives than better and older ones. You see, Abadja had probably heard all the brilliant stories of David but he decided, you know something? I'm just going to allow the behavior of the dad I see to have greater influence on me. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, who are you looking to as your role model? Who is influencing your life at the moment? A badge, it says, reigns for three years, that's all. But there's a couple of verses in his short story that actually provide some level of hope. Have a look at verse four and five if you've got a copy of scripture in front of you. Here's what it says. Nevertheless, for David's sake... The Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life. And you all want to scream, don't you? Hang on. And then the scripture says, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Do you remember uh, God's promise to David way back in 2 Samuel 7? Here it is. Your house, David, and your kingdom, David, it'll endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, that was God's promise to David way, way back. Given the track record so far and to date, it doesn't look like there's any chance of David's house, David's kingdom, David's throne lasting another year. Never mind lasting for anywhere near forever. And so to hear these words, these words, the verses four and five, in the midst of badger's story, keeps bringing us back to God and to the promises of God. Yes, Abijah was a disaster, just like the king before him, but nevertheless, for the sake of David. And that word nevertheless just means everything. God had made a promise to David and despite how bad things looked, despite how hopeless things seemed, despite how messed up things had become, the promises of God still stand. And that changes everything, every single time. Things in Judah were now a total shambles. But because of God's promise to David, there's gonna be a lamp in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. There is going to be a light in the darkness. There is going to be hope in the hopelessness. And so Abadjah can mess up, and Rehoboam can mess up, but neither and none of them, and nothing is going to derail the Word of God, the promise of God to David, who did what was right and kept all the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. I love this. I really love this. Because that's a rather big accept, isn't it? I mean, here is a reference to David's adultery. Here is a reference to David's attempted cover-up at having Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered. David wasn't perfect. And every time 1 Kings mentions David's fully devoted heart, We all want to scream, hang on a minute, what about his sexual sin? What about his contract killing? Well, the Bible doesn't deny the elephant in the room. Here it is, referenced in black and white, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Yes, David did all that, he absolutely did. He chose to do all of that. He chose to sleep with someone else's wife. He chose to have her husband murdered. But by the grace of God, we read that David repented of his sin. I have sinned against the Lord, is what David said to Nathan the prophet. And by the grace of God, he, David was forgiven. Here's what Nathan says to David. The Lord has taken away your sin. David didn't always get it right by any means, by a long shot. But you know what? His heart, unlike the heart of Solomon that turned, David's heart was aligned to God's heart, which is why David goes down in history as a man after God's own heart. Here was someone who confronts sin. Here was someone who cries out to God when he needs to, God, create in me a clean heart. And so the reference or the references plural to David doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord and banging on about how his heart was fully devoted to God, they are entirely right, they're entirely accurate. And therefore, God's promise to him of a lamp in Jerusalem, of light in darkness, of hope in hopelessness, is absolutely sure, irrespective of anything we do, and irrespective of how things look at times. And I don't want to push this too far. But you know, sometimes as you look around at the mess you make in your life and the mess I make in my life. And sometimes as you look around at the state of the world, you wonder about promises of God, don't you? You wonder about promises of God like, behold, I am making all things new. Really? Really, God, That's, that's not how I see it. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Really? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Do we believe that promise of God? God has said it. He can 100% depend on it. Regardless of what you think, regardless of what you see, regardless of what you observe all around you. God promised A son of David who would be a lamp, who would be a light. And years later, despite the increasing darkness and the increasing hopelessness, the New Testament begins with these history-altering words. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the what? What's the next phrase? The son of David. Who would go on to describe himself as the light of the world. You see, all God's promises or yes, and amen. So back to the story. Abadja dies; three years he reigned for, but he dies, and Asa or Isa becomes king. And although we probably don't hold out much hope for him, look at verse eleven for a surprising read. Isa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. Now there's a turn up for the books. So it is possible to buck the family trend. It is possible to live for God in dark times. Whenever everything and everyone around you has fallen apart or fallen away. The cycle of wickedness can be broken. And even if you don't read another word, surely that in itself is a welcome relief and a genuine encouragement. We can make different choices. We don't have to become products of our godless environment. We don't have to go with the flow. We can opt for a better way, God's way. Asa's introduction is refreshing. And it gets better because then we read, scan below that verse, then we read how he begins to clean up the place, including his own family. Now here's a risky venture. Here's a brave move. You see, Asa starts by expelling the male shrine prostitutes, whatever they were that had appeared during Rehoboam's reign, that's his grandfather. He gets rid of all the idols that his ancestors have made, is what he says, which would have been a mammoth task. And he even removes his grandmother from the position of queen mother because of a detestable image that she made for the worship of a false god. It takes courage to challenge a member of your own family, especially your gran. But we also read this, Ephesians. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. Now, I I, I know there is a hint there of not doing all that he should have done. Maybe he should have got rid of those high places as well, but he didn't. But it's the second half of that verse that deserves attention. And I know as well, some of you are sitting there and saying, hang on, as you read on in Asa's story, is there not some question marks hanging over his political willing and dealing? And if you read the parallel account of Ace's story in Second Chronicles, is there not some questionable aspects of his reign, including how he dealt with his diseased feet at the end of his reign? Well, yeah. Yeah. For those of you who know Scripture well, you will know some of that stuff, and I accept that. But based on this text... I want to affirm, and I want to hold on to the second half of that phrase, that Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. You see, Asa not only did what was right, but his heart was right. And unlike his great-grandfather, Asa's heart didn't turn the older he got, the way Solomon's heart turned the older he got. Asa's heart Remained fully committed, it says, all his life. So you see, it is possible to finish well against all the odds. It is possible to stay the course and complete the race, even if, even although you've made countless mistakes. Why? Because, and now I become repetitively boring. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It always boils down to this. And Ace's heart was fully committed. And yeah, there's a whole lot of bleak material in the middle chapters of 1 Kings, but there's also rays of hope. And Asa's David-like heart is a ray of hope. And it says that Asa reigned for 41 years. 41 years, that's a long time, certainly longer than a is three. And then it says Asa's son took over and his son was called Jehoshaphat. And for those who were out a couple of Sunday nights ago at Engage, that name should ring a few bells based on what Drew shared with us. So how would I sum up all that we've looked at this morning? Here are six takeaways. One, God is jealous. And stirring up that aspect of his character by turning to, by flirting with, by replacing God with other gods, it's never clever. God is called Jealous choose your role models carefully choose good ones and follow them closely three god's covenant promise to david was never in doubt despite how bad things how bad things looked despite how badly people behaved the lamp the promised lamp was never going to go out all god's promises in christ or yes and amen. Fourthly, failure isn't final. Should never define us. David messed up spectacularly, but by the grace of God, he found forgiveness and restoration. Fifthly, it is possible to live for God in dark and difficult times. We don't have to be like everyone else. We don't have to go with the flow. We don't have to buy in to the cultural shift. And sixth it is possible to finish well. So, despite the so-called boringly repetitive material and boringly repetitive preacher, I hope we might take something away this morning that equips us and that fuels us in our faith.